0: Hello and welcome to Slogging It. We have reached week six. Toby Tarrant um, gave us until February so we may still yet prove him right but the trajectory that we're on would suggest otherwise. Um, great to have my two co-hosts with me. I will ask them both now how they are. Eugene first this week, how are you my friend?
1: Hello John i am good, thank you. We are we are about to go into lockdown as of uh, one minute past midnight on Tuesday or, or Wednesday morning. So yeah, I'm gonna go get my hair cut tomorrow before um for those Careful. of you recording on recording on Monday. Yeah, I'm gonna go get my hair cut.
0: Right, okay, get them to leave a little bit on, mate. Um because it, it there's not there's not that much <laughs> left. I teed it uh, up, Robert, I teed it up. <laughs> <laughs> Robert, we played golf today, didn't we? Um but uh, yeah, Yes, so I know. I know that you're all right, but you
2: know, you might as well. Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm good, mate. I had my best ever round of golf today, which was uh, which was lovely. Um, I'm just interested in the the na- latest sponsorship that we could be getting for Eugene's haircuts, which I can only seem is coming <laughs> from Pledge or some <laughs> other kind of wood cleaning product.
1: <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah. We need to ask Woodstock for some linseed oil.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you get a tan, which uh, is something that we'll be talking about in a couple of weeks' time. Um, but, uh, yeah, um, first of all, must uh, mention Big Smoke, uh, our one of our partners. So, thank you to them for their continued support. Uh, for those of you that don't know, I assume most of you will by now. Uh, every Friday night at about eight o'clock, we are now doing Instagram Lives, we get some amazing interaction with pros who just come on, join the call, have a 10-15 minute chat with us um, about different bits and pieces. This Friday uh, we are, it looks like we're going to get Joshua De Silva uh, from Umedi's debut for the West Indies this week, which is very, very, very exciting. Cool. Uh, along Did with well Mark well. Dare, the current Irish international and a couple of other guests. So please do join us for that. Um, talking of uh, Josh. Obviously, this week in cricket is something we looked to cover off early in the podcast. Um, the West Indies, um, we'll come on to Josh in a minute, but the West Indies have, have played two tests in New Zealand. Uh someone say negative captaincy, winning the toss twice and bowling twice, although it did look green on both occasions, but New Zealand have batted once on both occasions and the West Indies have really struggled. Yeah, I think it was green. I don't think them
2: winning the toss and bowling was the where they got it wrong, um, this West Indies bowling attack is frustrating for me. It, when it came over here in the summer, it was lauded as the, the best bowling attack since that great bowling attack, which is a big thing to say. Um, and to be fair, they bowled well here. I'd give them that. Certainly, in the first test, they bowled well um, and then kind of let themselves go a bit. But they just didn't bowl very well. They... That on that wicket certainly in second test mm. that if you run it they saw a, um, when you bowled it just hit a length hit an area yes it was quick but for me they looked like 15 year old bowlers that just found out first played on a quick, quick wicket
0: weren't that New Zealand 22 22 without loss and two overs in the, in the first innings of the second test I mean I remember <coughs> I was watching it obviously because Josh being involved and obviously knowing him so well but um, Gabriel, yes, he had a bit of a gale at his back, like you know, 120 kpa kph wins and stuff. But he just kept bowling Tom Latham long half volleys and full bungers on leg stump. They just kept plonking through midwicket. Um, Huge. I don't know if you got to see much of it.
1: I did. I watched a uh, watched a couple of hours. It. I was up into the the late night um, watching some cricket. You know, You do what you have to. Um, yeah, it's interesting you talking about the bowling. I, I could argue the same with the batting. Um, I watched most of the West Indies bat. Which, if I'm honest, didn't take very long. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it was one of those where I think there was only two, maybe three fifties across the four innings. Um, and again, when you when you think about it from an application point of view, I mean, you know, the debut well, boy came in and, and showed everyone how to bat. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll get onto yeah. Josh in a bit. But yeah, it just, their batting was just nowhere, in my opinion.
2: The one thing I've also about the West Indies batting against that New Zealand bowling attack which, I, for me, is the most underrated bowl in soccer world cricket. Mm. Uh, the three main seamers of Southie, Bolt, and Wagner. I mean, Wagner's two in the world now.
1: Good South African heritage. Two
2: proper... Yeah, let's not start with that one. Uh, <laughs> but, but for me, Bolt and Southie are both brilliant, brilliant long-form up-bowlers. Especially, mm. you just saw him on that on that pitch. And the new lad, Jameson, was it? That come in, I mean, he yeah, can bowl yeah. quick. Um, but they came in, Southie just runs in. He knows what length to bowl on green wickets or on wickets with any kind of assistance. why He's always done well over here. He runs in, pulls it just full of length. He kisses the pitch as well as anyone. Like people talk about Anderson and the way he gets it to go and shape. Southie is possibly not quite as good, but... When he gets it going, that little that shape away from the bat and it goes late and it just seems he only bowls at 81, 82 miles an hour. But you look at the, how the ball goes past the top of the stumps from that full of length and it's always rising free to the keeper. So I think any bat inside, especially when you bowled first and they've got 500 on a green one, any bat inside against that bowling lineup's is going to sit there and go, we are on a hiding to nothing.
0: Well, I, I, I'm not sure I agree. I, I, I'd say I'd say maybe if someone's got 500 on a green one, it's probably a decent wicket to bat on. Um, I, I think that there's a lot of the West Indian players, the top six. Uh, so there's a guy called Marshall who uh, I commentate on gorilla cricket with, who, who runs the Caribbean cricket podcast, which is an amazing podcast, by the way. People should really check that out, especially if they've got an interest in West Indian cricket. Um, and he was... Um, you know, there's a lot of people calling for a lot of that top six to go. Um, Jermaine, um, Jermaine Blackwood got a 60 odds in the first dig. There yeah. were three 50s in the second dig of the second test. Uh, Holder, um, oh, uh, what's that? Uh, Campbell and uh, JDS. We'll talk about that in a sec. Um, but, you know, Roston Chase, for the last two years, has averaged, I think it's either 14 or 19 in, in test cricket. And, um, Darren Bravo, obviously, had some time away from the game. We know he's obviously a fantastic batter, but he's really struggled. He's probably still trying to get used to test cricket again. Obviously, he had a fallout with the WICB a couple of years ago. And I think there's still some underlying problems in West Indian cricket. Um, but I think what we did see, having now been given his proper opportunity, uh, Joshua De Silva, who obviously was an overseas pro for me uh 2017, is still a very, very good friend of mine. I was, I've been texting his dad most of the week while well, I've been watching it. We we spend more time like texting each other than we do actually watching the cricket. Um, but to come in, you know, it eight, he's had to shepherd the tail in both innings, but you know, got got three unlucky try to leave one off Southie, just got a bottom edge through to the keeper in the first dig, but fifty-seven, you know. And he, he I, I was texting him last night, and he was saying Ross Taylor spoke to him. He turned down a single on forty-nine because he was trying to protect Jamal mm, yeah. Holder. And then Josh has actually said to us, I think Eugene's one of the groups that we we're asking him about it. Ross Taylor actually said to him at the time, he was like, fuck them, mate. You're on debut, get 50. Don't worry about them. <laughs> like, you've, you've worked so hard. You've got to this point. Don't, you know, don't throw it away. And I think everybody who knows it. I spent the next, like, 15 minutes with my eye, head behind a cushion just thinking, don't, don't get out now. Don't get out now. But to see him do that and achieve that, like, it was it was fantastic. I mean, you you obviously know him well. I think it's very much a very proud moment for all of us, wasn't it? Absolutely. The one well, the one
1: thing I'll say is that shows the true character of the guy. You know, it's team before. Yeah. There's no iron team. So, you know, uh, yeah. I mean, maybe maybe Ross was a little bit of sides sides saying that. I know from my perspective, I think it's the best thing you can do. For me, I'm sure he's won so many hearts and minds over, and show, and specifically within the West Indies cricket side to go. Do you know what? He could have gone on and scored hundred, and you know, got the got the um, the West Indies. I don't know, 100, 150 ahead, and they could have won the game from there. know, you, you, you never know. Yeah. And and look, I mean, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty and all that, but it didn't work out like that. And he still ended up scoring his fifty. But I think from a from a hearts and minds point of view, he's done a fantastic job of winning over people. I mean, we've known that for you know as many years as we have. Um, so yeah, I mean, he's a, he's a great kid, and yeah, looking forward to watching him in the future. That's for sure.
0: He's very popular in the West Indies camp as well. I think, you know, a, a young lad coming in, I think he's got they've got a lot of respect for him. When he we got left out of the Red Force one-day side and then became part of that West Indies emerging players side that famously won their one-day tournament last last season. Um and I think he's at firmly on the map now. Uh, I think the, there are some people maybe worried that because he's opened in first-class cricket they and because they've got problems at the top of the order, that maybe they might ask him to open. There's a lot of people calling for that not to happen because they don't want that to ruin him. Personally, I'd like to see him probably bat six and take the gloves, or bat seven and take the gloves, or if, you know, and then longer term, maybe um, bat at five if another wicket keeper comes through. But I, I think they, they need to allow him to, to kind of buy his time as he grows into the, the side and test cricket in general. Uh, but yeah, fantastic. Congratulations, to Josh. Um, we hopefully will see you have you on our big Big night in tomorrow evening as this will come out on Thursday. Um, Australia and India, the Aussie, it's been quite fair in the one day stuff. I know that they've had a tour match, but the, the, with the first test due to start in a couple of days, Aussie's taking the one day as 2 1, but then the score lines reversed in the T20s with India winning that 2 1. What do we think?
2: Two very even sides, isn't it, really? Um, both of them their bowling attacks are pretty nailed on, you'd say. Depends on whether India choose to go with a couple of spinners or not, but they'll they'll shuffle their order about accordingly. accordingly. Uh, Coley, is a, is he playing one test or has he come out? Yeah, now?
0: first test. Uh, I think he's got a baby on the way, hasn't he? So he he's on the yeah, yeah, board. he has.
2: Um, I think that could be something that swings this. I think that Australian batting order with Smith... Uge, you'll correct me on however I say this, Labou Shane or whatever his name is.
1: Um what is it, Euge? It's, it's Labuschagne in Australia, but Lago in uh, South Africa, yeah. yeah. Another, another, you another seem South African here is thing. something on, on the, the camera.
2: One. Um The uh that they they're sort of batting order within their warner's Warner's out that they've got this lad that scored a thousand runs in four knocks or whatever it is. Cameron Green. Um, yeah. that that looks a good player. Um,
0: is he the bowler? No, Cameron not, Green? not
2: Cameron Green. Cameron Green's a the bowler. They got help in the beam.
1: He's also um, a headsman though. No, fair play. He's not, he open, though,
0: he's doesn't open, does he?
2: No, it's Rem. it uh, begins with oh. Um, Don't know. But yeah, so he he. But there's rooms. They might not pick him. Um, there's a, there's two or three line in, in for that spot. So for me, that'll be where that that series is won or lost. That sort of top order, top, top four battle, especially with no Coley. They've got a lot of good players, mind India, haven't they? Sherry, I can't seem to get a look in at the minute and stuff like that. Mm. Some of the guys that they're, they're, they're bringing through are very good. It um, should be a good
0: series, to be fair. Um, mm. Two good sides. Um, just so, just quickly, before we go into the interview, huge uh, some stories in the South African media regarding the England tour have come out. I'll be interested, because I obviously heard this first from you, um the other day what, what, what what's the view on that what what are the current I, I mean obviously with the media you can never quite tell how much it's true and how much it's kind of pot stirring but what what's the view from the South African angle
1: a lot of uh, finger pointing is probably the best description I can give um South Africa are pointing at England England are pointing at South Africa there's just it's just a it's just a mess if I'm really honest um you know I think the first thing that was England said was is that uh, they felt a little bit um uneasy with the south african team meeting together and having a, a braai or a barbecue and they felt that they were not you know adhering to to protocol and then you hear about england going and playing eight rounds of golf um five. across the uh, it's eight i I'll, I'll have you know um but yeah five <laughs> at one golf course three at another um yeah so um yeah i mean Stats. you know uh, uh, yeah it, it's it's Stats. one of those where yeah it's one of those where you just go you know what? Let it let it be now. I know South Africa are feeling a little bit of pain at the moment because it's cost thirty million, or it's 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 not uh, generated thirty rand. million. I can't remember rand, rand correct, yeah, rand, numbers, yeah. Yeah. Uh, What's that? A million and a half pounds? Still a chunk of change. Um, yeah, a yeah, bit, they, but yeah. A lot of money in South Africa at the minute. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, like I said, I don't know. I don't know the full story. I'm just going off what uh, what the media and the cricket writers are saying. So. Yeah, I I suppose, like everything, give it more time and we'll find out more details of what will happen. But um, yeah, for now, from a South African point of view, I'm just looking forward to the Sri Lanka interview starting on Boxing
0: Day. Sri Lanka interview starting on Boxing Day, uh, or maybe even the series. Uh, Talking of interviews, we uh, are shortly going to go into what is an amazing interview with our guest of this week, uh, who is Luke Sutton, uh, Somerset, um, amazing career at Lancashire and then uh, finishing up at Derby uh, so that'll be in a second but before we do that, obviously every week we discuss our allegiance uh, with the Lord's Taverners the fantastic cricketing charity uh, trying to offer every child, uh, no matter their circumstances a sporting chance in life um, again, that text number to donate £3 is 70331 That's 70331, and new text tabs one one to donate that three pounds uh please make sure you are at least 16 and have the bill payers permission before doing so and on that note just before the luke Sutton interview here is a note from the lord's taverners the lord's taverners is the uk's leading youth
2: cricket and disability sports charity we break down barriers and empower disadvantaged and disabled young people to fulfill their potential and build life skills Our cricket programmes support some of the most marginalised and at-risk young people in the UK, using sport and recreation to build links and encouraging groups to play sport together. We tackle issues such as knife crime, unemployment, radicalisation and also isolation, something we are all feeling right now. Last year, our programmes impacted the lives of more than 12,000 young people and, with your support, will help even more in the future. Find out more and make a donation at
0: lordstaverners.org and help us to continue our life-changing work. Thank you. So, uh, hi, Luke. We are joined today by Luke Sutton uh, of Derbyshire, Somerset and Lancashire, uh, 20-year career. Uh, Luke, pleasure to have you with us.
3: Thanks for having me, looking forward to it.
0: Um, so obviously there's, um, we'll come on to the, the main reason uh, behind the interview in a minute, but uh, this is your uh, first book, Back from the Edge, uh, which is obviously what we're going to discuss. There is a second book available that we're hoping you'll come on and discuss in a separate uh, interview after Christmas. Uh, just to give people a, a little bit of a um, an insight into to what the book is. I mean, having read it, uh, we were chatting the other day. Uh, I read it cover to cover, couldn't put it down, just found it, it completely uh, like nothing that I'd ever read before. Uh, so open, so honest, look at like dependence and recovery. Um, and, and But more importantly, I think what caused that eventual dependence. Uh, can you talk us through the process of sitting down and writing it? It must've been quite a tough thing, you know, to look that inwardly and go through that.
3: Well, uh, I. Weirdly, it's it, I know that that, that would be a, a sort of sensible assumption, but it wasn't really. I think for me, um, once I made the decision to write the book, you know, this was stuff I had I'd sort of kept to virtually myself. You know, Bar Bar, you know, people very close to me kind of seven, eight years and and you know, and then and then the backstory behind it, you know, it was a story over 20 years, 30 years. And and um so when I made the decision to start writing, it just poured out of me. And it's not a very long book, um, but um it didn't take me long to write because it was like it was just all this stuff that I i kind of it was very therapeutic. I just wanted to share it and it, it just poured out of me.
0: Do you think it helped with your recovery
3: or, to go through that process? Yeah, I do actually, because you know, um, a big part of recovery is is honesty, and you know, getting honest with yourself and and everything that's going on around you. You know, you kind of live in this denial, and and it does it's not from being a kind of bad person. It's just where you're stuck. And I think being truly honest. And I did want to write the book, and you know, as as, as you've said, it, it it is brutally honest, and and I guess for some people quite hard to read at times. It's so honest, and um, but I, I needed to do that because it was like this is this is me, you know. And um, and then anyone who, who meets me, I, I am to be totally honest about my past and, and the mistakes and the recovery and the the down and the up and everything in between. So um, yeah, it was it was a big part of my recovery.
0: I think um, well we as we said just before we started recording, that we we want to go right back to the start and kind of figure out where things kind of. And started to ingrain themselves in your personality I guess so growing up you spent the first what five years of your life in Amman uh, moving then to Peru uh, really interested that you that relationship with Gladys I think was the, the housekeeper uh, while you were in Peru uh, then you went to the Netherlands where you became a fantastic swimmer then you went on to Millfield uh, which is obviously an amazing school that we'll come on to later on but you said that you really wanted to fit in and almost be liked. And that must've been quite a, a tough, I know it was a tough situation for you to leave your mum and whatever. Do you think that, that the desire to be liked may have been, uh, from being thrust into a situation of boarding and, you know, the, the deep end, sorry to coin a, a swimming phrase. So, so early on.
3: Yeah, it's difficult to know. It's like a kind of nature and nurture question, isn't it? You know, and I, th- I think, um, you know now i look back on things i i do think i had the characteristics from from birth just naturally of potentially running into these sorts of mental health and addiction issues but i think early on the environments that i was in was you know d- did have a big impact on me and, and millfield was this kind of you know i've never seen a school like it it's like excellence on steroids and you know high performance on steroids and you know, I remember going to Milford Senior School and I was just like looking at the sixth formers and they just looked like they were from Hollywood. It was just, you know, it was mind-blowing the facilities, the scale. You know, I, I was good at cricket, but we had people at the school who were playing international rugby and in the Olympics, and it was just it was just a completely weird environment. And I think I guess ultimately I was, a, I was just a really nervous, insecure, not in, I guess insecure, just nervous, desperate to fit in. I know all kids are to some extent. But that that desire to to be popular or not, not even be popular, just to fit in was was really powerful in me. And I guess in a in a kind of high octane environment that that got more because it felt like there was even more to to kind of fit in with, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, it does. Um, I was astounded to hear this when Johnno talked about you swimming earlier. I didn't know that you went to Millfield originally on a swimming scholarship and then sort of moved into cricket later. Um, about what age was that that you sort of made the, the switch in the change, was it? And what made you change over?
3: Um, yeah, it wasn't a, uh, a sudden thing. It was a, it was a, a sort of a grand, gradual transition from, um, from swimming into some, some more cricket and other sports, to be honest, because I was playing rugby and hockey and I was just loving everything. I loved just getting stuck into to all sorts of things. Um, you know, the thing was, before I went to Millfield, I hadn't actually spent a lot of time in Europe. So I didn't know a lot of the mainstream. Like cricket was really, really new to me. Yeah. Um, and it was, you know, it was sort of this quintessentially English thing, you know, with T's and Y <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, I, and there was a Moorishness to it. You know, it was like, maybe it was the addict in me. You know, I could get 30 runs, but hang on, I could get 50 runs. I could get 60 runs. Or, you know, there was always this kind of more, more, more type thing. Yeah. And, um, and as, I, as I started to play cricket from nine, ten years old, I, I fell in love with all of those aspects of it and all the intricacies. And and then there was that versus swimming, which I was, you know, I love competing. I love the sense of the water around me, but it was, it's lonely swimming. You know, it's five o'clock in the morning looking at the bottom of a pool and in Milford, it's hardcore. You know, it was it was before school, lunchtime and post school. And there was not a lot of time for anything else, really. And I guess I, as I got better at cricket, I was just, you know, I, just as a, going into my teenage years thinking, would I rather hang out with my mates and eat tea and score runs and take catches <laughs> or stare at the bottom of a pool? And it just kind of transitioned into, you know, moving away from swimming.
2: Yeah. yeah. Interesting. You talk about obviously that Millfield in the, the training and um, obviously Millfield's renowned for producing some ridiculous sports people have, across a range of sports and they've... Everyone sort of I've ever met and known comes out of there with like a an arrogance to themselves. Um, and it seems like that's a, a pride that they, that Millfield install into them. It's like a push. Do you think that's something that sort of contributed to the struggles you had going forward? And do you think it's a good thing that they they do that?
3: It's a really, really good question. There, there definitely is that. You know, I think I write in the book, this, this hockey teacher had a massive influence on me. You know, he always say, listen, you know, we're already one nil up because we're Millfield and you know and, and the swimming t-shirts we used to say just said we swim fast and it was just like all the messaging is is like we're going to smash you and we're brilliant so obviously if you're a kid growing up in that that's that's what you 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 believe and and I do think that Millfield definitely prepared me for professional cricket that I don't know if I would have you know maybe you know I I still think I was a fairly averagely talented player, but to, to survive get into professional cricket and then survive, I think Milford had a big part of it. Yeah. I think the the and and different people react to that in different ways. I think for me, it was it's not real. That's the thing. It's not, it's not, it's not based on a grounding. So when I started to to sort of be living in that world where, you know, my affirmation came from women winning, my you know, success is win or lose, life was about win or lose, win, we're all good, lose, everything's bad. Yeah. Um, I think that was born from that upbringing and that got, you know, I got into trouble with that because that's where I got my whole sense of purpose from. I didn't have anything deeper within. And um, so it's a really difficult one. I'm very grateful for what Milford gave me. It's It's an amazing school in many aspects. Um, but for where I am now, I had to really kind of rebuild and relearn a lot of the things that maybe I didn't learn at that time. Again, yeah. I hope that makes sense.
0: Um, moving away now from, from school, obviously you enjoyed, uh, I say enjoyed, you, you had an amazing 20-year career at Somerset, Lancashire, Derbyshire. Um, but by this point, obviously, you, you'd realised to yourself that you, know, you may be... Consumed alcohol in different ways to other people, Um, and so I mean, your fitness allowed and your work ethic allowed you to become a leader of men in in dressing rooms. But your fitness also became a way of punishing yourself for, you know, the the kind of the the drinking that you'd done either the night before or the week before or whatever. Mm. Um, Do you think this kind of addictive trait, if you like, is within all sports people, given the highs (laughs) that it can provide them at the top level?
3: Yeah, I, I think that professional sports people struggle with balance. You know, it's it's, it's obsessive, it's self-absorbed, it's hyper-focus, it's, you know, it's all of those things. And I think that's a very common characteristic. Um, and it's and it's a difficult balance between allowing those um, characteristics, like what I had, to flourish and to go, and also being able to just centre it a little bit and get, kind of not get too caught up in that because that the extreme behavior will follow you in all aspects. It did with me, you know, I would practice right-handed catching for an hour and a half without a break just to, to because I was obsessing about whether or not I could catch well enough with my right hand. Um, would be the same type of, you know, mentality that would go, right, when I'm I'm going out and I'm going to drink, I'm going to do this better than anyone else in this room. And the, the point is that it, it eventually becomes unmanageable and you, you blow up. Well, I blew up and being able to find that line is, a, is going to always be a constant challenge for professional sports people.
0: Do you think when when things got to their kind of worst, if you like, prior to going into rehab, um, you know, you, you talk about in the book, people have since come out and said that, you know, they could tell that you weren't in a great place, but, you know, until Glenn and Mark found you in that, you know, Altrincham bar on, on that, you know, the day that was, let's call it breaking point. Um, you know, people hadn't decided to, let's say, challenge you on it, uh, you know, hard enough, let's say, I know a couple of people have maybe mentioned it to you before that, but what would you say to people who think they might have a friend who is struggling, but feels unsure about how to approach the subject?
3: Yeah. Um, it's the key really. I, I, I think, you know, what was going on previously was I was not listening to anyone, I was not hearing it. But my behaviour was annoying people, it was hurting people, it was disappointing people, it was um, all of those sorts of things. So the reaction often was, you know, not, not intended in this way, but you're a bad person, you know, I don't like you, you're a bad person. And I felt that shame. I felt it all because I knew the truth. So I would in the dark of night know, I would think, oh my God, who are you, Luke? You're, you know, you're awful. You did this, you did that. And so what I would say to people, if, if you, you see someone behaving in those ways, just, I know it's hard and it's particularly hard on family members, but try and remember that they're not a bad person. They're just a the person in need of help and shaming them out of it doesn't work. They already feel the shame. But just trying to step in there and go, listen, can we just talk about how you're behaving at the moment and, and, and try and take the judgment out of it and, you know, reach into that, that person is a better way. But I know it's really difficult because when someone's behaving in those ways, you want to shout at them. You want to shout at them. You want to hate them. You, you might well hate them. And there was people I hurt badly in that time. And I, I've had to live with that and, and you know, and, and make up for it. But I know that shaming me at the time wouldn't have made any difference. I, I felt badly enough about who I was as it as it was.
2: Yeah, it's um Yeah, that, that bit of the book for me was one of the most sort of bit that grabbed me and you sit there and go like when you talk about the fact you your dad walked in and then your mom and, and that type of thing was, yeah. was fascinating. And um, you went to the priory, a lot of people won't know what the priory is. Uh, some people may not. Um Can you Explain a little bit about it and, and sort of what goes off.
3: Yeah, there's no bloody jacuzzis in there. That's that's the <laughs> <I can> say. <laughs> if there are, I didn't find them. Um, yeah, I you know, there's there's different priory hospitals around the country. I went to the one which was five minutes from my house, I didn't even know it, it was there the whole time I lived there, which is really funny. I someone when they said to me, Oh, we've got you an appointment at the priory, I thought I was going to get in a car long, you know, a long car journey, and actually it was like we just drove up the height, you know. 500 meters up the road and we're like oh we're here (laughs) um yeah it's you know i can only tell it from my experience that the priory is basically a hospital you know that that that's and and people kind of need to remember that and the people that are in there are really ill really poorly and i was really poorly um you know stuck in a kind of mental delusion about where they're at in life and how great they are or, or where things are at um and it's, it's it, it, for me, it was a place in which firstly, I could, you know, detox initially safely and, and uh, kind of get my sleep back and get eating three meals a day. And, and then it was, you know, for me, it was all group sessions. So, you know, as you guys have read in my, my, my group, there was, you know, drug lords, lawyers, prostitutes, you know, vicars, the whole range, you know, there was and there was, there was I thinking I was a bit better than everybody else. And, you know, it's a very, very grounding experience to go, no, this is this is where we're at. And, the, you know, the, my therapists were some of the most extraordinary people I've ever met in my life. And I owe them everything um, because they listened to me ranting on in deluded ways about different things and slowed me down and they gave me a different perspective. And, and really the Priory is, is a... It's a place where life can stop, and you get a chance to re look at where things are at. The work it very much continues when you leave, but for me, it was that kind of daily. You know, we were in from nine till five. It's like going to school type of thing, um, but it was it was amazing for me.
2: Yeah, it's. I mean, you you do mention in the book some of the some of the people that you met there, and there's a story of, of Lenny that is is incredible. Um, two people from very different walks of life by the sound of it and, and you would obviously keep in touch with him. Can you sort of let us know, I know you probably can't say too much, but what happened to him and what became of him?
3: No, unfortunately, I'm not in touch with him anymore. He, um, uh, you know, as, as you tell from this book, his profession or the way he made money meant that he, he went through different mobile phones fairly quickly. So it was quite <laughs> hard. <laughs> Uh, he's always on burner mobile phones and um yeah i kept up i kept in touch with him for a while but then I, d- I don't i don't know where he is now and i i you know i say little prayers for him once in a while that i hope him and his family are all well and you know that people can judge him for what he you know he was basically work working drug gangland in liverpool you know you can judge him for that and uh and everyone can have their opinion on that but for me he was just another human being who came from a tough tough background you know i was there silver spoon from millfield you know this guy showed me more about humanity and compassion than most people i'd ever met he didn't need to do that you know he was he was a pretty scary individual at times but he you know he he could have he could have beat me up at school you know uh, you know it was that, it was it was um, you know that kind of character but he was amazing you know and he was just trying to get over addiction just as i was he was just trying to be a better man a better father a better husband just like i was and um you know i was really grateful that he was he was in there when i was in there
0: i think obviously people can read much more about lenny in in the book um and it was that first interaction i thought it's such a nice story or a nice part of the the story and Obviously, it's your first day at the Priory. You're obviously, you lost all your bearings. You, I think at the time, you're probably still feeling the effects of alcohol or whatever. And and you're obviously frightened like a new puppy in a new surroundings or whatever. And this guy who happens, you know, whatever lifestyle he's led, comes over and gives you a massive cuddle. Mm. And, and you just you just cried and cried and cried. But I think that, that first offer of support from someone that had never even met you or laid eyes on you before, no idea of Luke Sutton, the cricketer, was just willing to offer you that kind of, you know, real basic interaction on a human level to make, to try and comfort you in that way.
3: Yeah, it was, it was amazingly powerful. And I, you know, look, I look at some of the struggles that we're going through at the moment with COVID and all the difficulties in life. And, you know, I look back on that and it's just exactly what you, you said, you know, he didn't have to do that. He didn't have to make me feel better for being there um he was this tiny little guy with his skinhead and you know piercing eyes and terrifying with his massive puffer jacket on broad scouser and and you know got got straight into my space basically to make me feel better and um it was you know what i i don't know i was lucky that that all happened to me but i needed that i needed that grounding i you know my i also talk about my first group session when I I heard Lenny talk and I can feel myself getting emotional about it now. I needed to hear that because he was so different to me yet so much the same. And I walked into the Priory thinking I was a bit better than everybody else. I'd got into trouble in life thinking I was a bit better than everybody else. And I was different. You know, it was not about me. It was about you. You didn't like the way I behave. Well, that was about you. And just that, that experience with him and hearing him share about the same things that I deep down was terrified about, you know, I came out of the Priory gang, do you know what? I'm just a human being doing my best. And it was, it was what I needed, you know? So I'm really grateful for it.
0: You say that, I mean, it's interesting. It comes on to this next question really nicely. You, you're quite reluctant to admit having a problem with alcohol for quite a long time until you actually finally went in and they kind of broke. Luke Sutton to pieces in order to kind of rebuild the version 2.0 let's say of what we kind of sit here in front of us today and um, if people are going through that cycle that you went through before actually you know either having an intervention from other people or making the decision themselves which I imagine would be incredibly difficult for someone to say actually I do need to go to, to rehab and um, what but if those people are out there and people are battling currently with alcohol addiction and listening to this what advice would you be able to offer them having been through it yourself to try and
3: encourage them to to seek help themselves rather than waiting for someone else to do it Mm. I think I think it's just be open be willing you know to something that's that's what I would say you know addiction narrows your world it makes your world very very small the people that you surround yourself with the the way you you, what you do it gets smaller and smaller and smaller and it traps you in a little place that you can't get yourself out of and what I'd say to someone if you're in that place I know that loneliness I know that shame I don't wish it on anybody but you're not alone and you just need to be open to listen a little bit it doesn't mean you have to find the answer in Five minutes, but just open up to a little bit, you know, go and see someone or listen into something or go to a recovery meeting or connect with somebody. Just be open a little bit. And that's, that is all it takes. And then, you know, then the process can start. But it's just trying to break out of that tiny trap that addiction eventually narrows you into. Yeah. It's you and,
2: You talk in your book about the difference in perception between current players going through a problem, people like uh, more recent past like Alex Hales, who's obviously had his issues, and then past players, and obviously Andrew Flintoff's sort of issues have been well documented since he finished playing, and people like Robin Smith and people like that who've gone through problems. Um, Why do you think there's such a massive difference between that kind of perception level? The people who are doing it now compared to past stars and the positive and negatives, the way it's sort of switched.
3: Yeah, I, I think, you know, we've cricket was a drinking culture. You know, the one I walked into, whatever, 20 or 25 years ago was a drinking culture. You know, it wasn't it wasn't even discussed. It was that's the way it was. And, and the, the cricket world that Freddie Flintoff grew up in was that one that Robin Smith did, you know, and so. I think there's been a kind of attitude of well that's just the way it is you know and okay they've run into trouble well you know hey ho that's just what we do I think you know with the, the the example I give of Alex Hales in the book you know whether we like it or not drug taking is as rife in our society as as drinking in many ways you can walk into any pub in England and get get yourself some some cocaine or whatever it might be but I just I watched the way Hales was dealt with versus some of those other things and I'm like I, I don't get that. I don't get why one is, we're all right with one because oh, that's just the way it is. And then there's suddenly this sort of new age problem. we're like, oh no. And and then, the, you know, it was openly said in the media, well, we're not sure he fits our value system within the England team. I'm like, I, oh what? You know, I, I don't, would you be saying the same if he came out and said he was a gambling addict? I don't think you would. I think it's because it's cocaine and it's drugs. And I'm, you know, I'm in a position where I can say that i, I don't got anything to you know i'm gonna i'm not saying it for any reason because I like someone or dislike anyone anymore I just say it as I see it but I think it, it was a dangerous territory that you know and and Alex, i think has been dealt with in a way which I don't believe would have been the same if it had been a different type of addiction
2: following on from that do you think it's a media thing as well when it comes to sort of current and past players whereas a current player is the media all in this country certainly seem to be looking for ways to shoot them down. And whereas past players, they're kind of, as soon as anyone retires, they become a better player. That's sort of a well-known aspect of anything. But do you think there's sort of certainly within the media and society as a whole, there's this, if you're a former player, there's more of a, oh, it's it's such and such, it's what he did. And whereas if you're a current player, certainly at that level, it's a look at that privileged so-and-so throwing his life away there'd be all this many people that will give so much to do that do you think it's
3: i do i mean let's have a look at let's have a think about ben Stokes. so i I obviously talk about in the book as well you know as maybe the most gifted cricketer that we've seen for a very long time in an england team all round. you know extraordinarily exceptional um when he had got into the trouble he did in bristol and and you know everything that we saw it was horrible to see it was really really horrible to see and judge and jury you know in lots of different ways was cast upon him where i'd you know hear some people saying well that's just the way he is he's a warrior on and off the field and i was like so are we saying that he nearly needs to get himself in jail in order to play his best cricket is that is that what we're saying because i I'm, i miss that Yeah. Um, and also judging him and just thinking he's a bad person and he's, you know, he, he he clearly needed help at that time in his life, you know, and he and he clearly people don't just behave like that they get out of nowhere. And and if and if it, they do, they need they need someone to reach out to them. And and that reaction to it, this kind of staunch defense of it in a in a weird way, and then this staunch attack of him, I, I, I didn't hear many people going, is he all right? You know, that type of thing within the media. And I think that's where there's that gap in it. And I I looked at the Ben Stokes thing. My son saw it and said to me, "Why is Ben Stokes fighting in the streets?" And it was a tough conversation for me to process. But when I went away, I was like, "He needs help. He needs help at the moment, Ben." And and that's that's what I would I I would like to see more of. I think now that you um, you know a sports agent,
0: very successful sports agent, look after some amazing. Um, Athletes, uh, Jimmy Anderson, you've known him for years. I know him and his wife are very, very close to you. Uh, Samantha Quick, Louis Smith, the gymnast, uh, as well as England selector James Taylor, who, uh, whose career I think every England cricket fan was devastated. I, I always think that James Taylor was someone that every English cricket fan really liked and really always wanted him to do well and what have you. And unfortunately, due to a heart condition, his, his career was um stopped way before its time and certainly in, in England in a Knox shirt and um, you I know through talking to you now see it as you know your role as an agent it hugely important to help talk to you know your charges let's say about things that life will throw up to them as, as professional athletes Can you just talk us through a little bit of kind of how you try to manage that how you help JT a little bit through that that situation and, and how important you think that is
3: yeah, I, I my role as an agent, it's it's. I'm sure it's partly because of my own background, but I feel a great responsibility. In, in the guys that I'm working with, you know, they're they're often very young people, and and it can't just be about okay when they're when they're with me, I, we make lots of money, and then you move on. I just can't live that life. You know, I feel a greater responsibility to how they are getting on in life and how they're going to get on in in post career. Um, the the James Taylor situation. I actually out of every, everything that's happened to me in management is the one I kind of look back on the proudest really and I I now you know I see him you know with Ed Smith on the balcony you know choosing the next team and it looks you know it's amazing it's brilliant And I, I'm almost like it's like my son who's gone off to university and I'm <laughs> like oh you know this type of thing but what happened to him in that period was just incredibly difficult you know 26 year old playing in all formats to suddenly nothing no exercise complete change of life financial insecurity um purpose gone motivation gone direction gone and the loveliest guy in you know he is like a little brother to me and um, it, it, there was no rule book. There was no, okay, this is how you handle it. This is not, you know, it was just, we had to just get on with it. And um, and to see him now having got out of that and got to where he's got to is, I, I think that's what management's all about.
0: He's hell of a golfer now, though. I know that for a fact. He, play, <laughs> he, he plays at Hollingwell up the road from, me, from where me and Simon live. So, yeah. Uh... Yeah, hoping to, uh, to try and catch up with him. We share some mutual friends, so if I, uh, yeah. I'd love to hit
3: the fairways with him at some point. Well, it, I, I'm waiting. I mean, the England selector job came at a good time because I was waiting for the text, mac, uh, text message to say, I'd like to be a professional golfer. Can we do that? <laughs> because, oh, God, we it. Amazing. <laughs>
2: he uh he actually came to it was quite surreal last year we were playing a game up at papawik which is just north knots and um he's obviously still friends with a lot of the guys that used to play for knots and whatever and i i'm fielding on the boundary and uh turn around and jt was there what's a sort of watching our game with one of the uh opposition last uh lads called sam wood that used to play for knots and england were playing the west indies at the time in a test match and i think he surely i mean I thought I might, be, might have been doing a call-up or something. I thought he was having a look at some, someone to replace Jimmy Anderson with some medium pace out swingers. but uh, Nevertheless, the call didn't come. But, uh, no, uh, so obviously since moving on from from what you've sort of went through, you've now got a new fiancé, Joe, and sort of things are looking very good for you. Um, like, What does the future hold for Luke Sutton now?
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, it's not. I don't live on a fluffy cloud where nothing bad happens. You know, there's still <laughs> still lots of challenges and lots of difficulties. I'm just a very different person. I, I, you know, I'm I'm over nine years sober now, and I, I, I struggle to to recognize the previous person in many ways. Um, I just, I, I, I guess I just want now my my sense of purpose and happiness is very much centered around my children, Joe being a good son to my parents just trying to be a good member of society I know it sounds really corny but that's where I'm at really and I you know and I work in a sort of deeply commercial dog eat dog world and i my approach is very much like I'm just going to do the best job I can be be the best human being I can be and the rest will take care of itself and um and I think if I if I'm always in that place then you know over coming difficulties or challenges and finding happiness is always there because I'm, I'm defining myself by something a bit deeper rather than how much money I've got or, you know, or or something that's, you know, tapping into my ego. And I, um, so I just feel incredibly grateful and happy. Um, I, I look back on my journey and I, I wish I hadn't caused the pain to some people I did. And I've, I've had to make amends for that. Um, but maybe I needed all of that to happen in order to get here. You know, maybe all that pain. And, you know, I went into rehab when I was 35. You know, maybe if some of those things hadn't happened, I would have got there eventually, but maybe it would have been 55 and I would really ruin my kids' lives. And, uh, and I'm, I'm in some ways, I'm just glad I got to where I've got to now.
0: I think just to, uh, before we kind of wrap up on this bit, I, you say that, and that takes me back now, there's a part in the story of the um, the fellow. I think his name is Jonathan, um, who, who turns out, you know, as we find out, to have been a successful lawyer. And then, you know, he then he, he obviously reached that point later and, and couldn't almost pull himself out through that recovery process. So, which obviously you've done incredibly successfully. You must look at that and and almost realize, you know, think how thankful you are that you know people did make that intervention at that time and, and and it didn't just carry on for another 10 or 15 years by which point it may have been too late
3: yeah and i, I think the line between someone you know getting it and not getting it or you know is very very thin you know it's it, i don't i don't sit in judgment on any of one like that not at all you know but but for the grace of god go i is the kind of saying you know it's like I, there's a there's in in Hale where I used to live that you know there was a, a a tramp who was a guy that I knew from recovery and I'd you know I'd come out get out of my car and he would be begging on on the street and I'd see him and I knew who he was and I'd think you know that could be me you know I know that sounds dramatic now and and it and, and unbelievable but it could have been you know I was toxic before I went into the priory and I was ruining everything and the the line between getting recovery and not is really, really fine. And I, I don't know why to, to, to today, why some people are able to get on it and other people not. I think, I think there has to be something that breaks in you that goes, I can't keep doing this enough. It's like enough. I can't, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, I, I'm, I'm done. But some people don't get to that place. And unfortunately, you know, in Jonathan's case, he was a massive teacher for me with what happened to him. But you know, it was a guy who died far too early and like left behind two boys and you know and a wife, and it's just tragic to see that. Um so we're gonna Luke, thank you amazing for your insight. I, I think right. your honesty is absolutely
0: incredible. Uh this is uh Luke's first book, which is Back from the Edge, which goes through it in great detail. It's an incredible read, as I said earlier on. I uh, couldn't put it down. I needed the loot for a you know, the entire time. The dog ate my dinner, uh, but I was just so engrossed in it. Um, which So, you know, it, get involved. Luke very kindly has signed two copies uh, and we will be sending those out. We'll come up with a, a competition uh, that we will run for the listeners, but the two signed copies available of this. Uh, Luke has also sent us a couple of copies of his second book, which is The Life of a Sports Agent, but we're not going to give those away now because if we did, he wouldn't be then forced to come back on and talk us through that one. So we've uh, we've got a second interview out of him if nothing else. Um, Luke, it's, um, I don't know if I told you about this or not. So this might be that curveball that you, I told you you weren't going to get. Um, we do five questions for the Lord's Taverners at the end of each uh, interview. So we will ask you five questions that uh, the chances are these may be quite easy for you. I don't know; it depends how stats-based you are. But right. each, each one's worth two pounds. So if you get all five wrong, you owe the Lord's Taverners a tenner.
3: No but, problem.
0: One of us three has to match it. Okay. So we now will play rock, paper, scissors. Oh, no, oh, no it's not Eugene. Our oh, Eugene's ducked out, so it's just between me and Tyler.
2: I'll go this week, because I think Luke's going to be all right. I'll go this week, because okay, you so went last week. So
0: will match whatever your outlay is. So it's added you know, up to £20 for the Lord's Taverners. Uh, absolutely okay. amazing. So, uh, question number one, Mr Sutton. How many professional games did you play across all formats? So first class this day and t20 total
3: have oh, i got to get this exactly right yes oh, i've got absolutely no chance um across all formats i'm going to say 386 oh you've got the first one right it's 303 <laughs> oh was it yeah I gave myself another 83 games so. <laughs> <Yeah>. um <laughs> What was it? What was your T20 strike rate? Oh, God, no, this is terrible. I'm like, you know, I'm so unstapped, based <laughs> it, was, it was surprisingly high. That's that I used to always think. Like, it was, I used to look at it and think, how I'd done that? Um, <laughs> bear in mind, I could barely get it off the square. It was, um, it was like 123 or something. Oh, 107.3. Oh, right. Sorry, there was a three. Still better than a run of ball. This is this whole retirement thing where I'm getting better in retirement. All my numbers are getting higher. It happens to everyone. Um, How many,
0: and this is an amazing stat, how many career dismissals?
3: Um, I'm just, I'm I'm, I'm paying the full whack here. Um, (laughs) In all formats? Yeah. Four hundred
2: and ninety-nine. Oh, you've undersold yourself. You've got you've got worse in retirement on that one. Seven hundred and twenty-seven.
3: Really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll take that. Um, so I think you might. The last two, we
0: we went a bit kinder on you. I think uh, in your last game against Surrey at the Oval, a pretty nice place to play your last first-class game. Um, how many runs and
3: dismissals did you get in that game? Can you remember? I didn't get many runs. Um, I reckon I got four runs, uh, and I reckon I got two dismissals.
2: Oh, you, you got 37 runs.
3: Did I? Oh, my
2: Over God. only got, in I got think,
0: five yeah. in the second dig following on. Yeah. Right.
2: Uh, and yeah, it was, yeah. And it was three dismissals.
0: Three. Okay. Pragyan Oja got you on a for spit in the second you know, Yeah. You. Yeah, I,
3: think, I remember him bowling me. I don't know. I, I was not in a great way at that by that point in my journey. That was oh, the yeah. last... Yeah, I was about a month from getting in the Priory. I I just genuinely did not know where the ball was going. So I think I did quite well to get 37.
0: Yeah.
3: <laughs> um, and
0: finally, um, you got a red inker in your last T20 batting at number 11. A name that you wouldn't necessarily expect to open the bat in, Opened with Michael Di Venuto. Who was that man?
3: Um, Michael Di Venuto. Goodness me! I got a
2: minute. Was this first or last T twenty? Oh, first T twenty. It, it was first T twenty. First T twenty. Two thousand and
3: three. Okay. Yeah, I remember. I know it was. It was at Yorkshire. It would be. I mean, two quid on this. Oh no!
2: Uh, Four quid. Sorry. Awkward, because I'm putting in as well.
3: Yeah, I know I'm sorry about this. I've really sunk you in. So really not a problem. You. Um, Nathan Domello.
2: No, but that's a fine guess. Uh, Dominic <laughs> oh,
3: Of course he was. He was captain. <laughs> it's all right, lads. It's all right, yeah. lads. I'll just hop out first. <laughs> I, I just if we've got time, I've got this that that first 2020 game always made me laugh because there was this rule then that you only only had a certain amount of time to get your 20 overs in it was like an hour and 15 minutes yeah big talk before the game like we've got an hour and 15 lads this is tight we're gonna have to do it we did our 20 overs in 45 minutes it was it was like like, it was like a 45 minute uh, aerobic session and we got battered (laughs) everywhere so they've like you know, they're getting hit. We're getting hit for six into stands. Lads are jumping into the crowd, running, getting the ball. <laughs> I mean, we broke the world record for 20 overs ever done. Amazing,
0: <laughs> Brilliant. Um, on that note, Luke, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so, so much for your openness, your honesty. The book is amazing. Guys, please, uh, please uh, just get involved, read it. It's it's an amazing read. You will learn so, so much from it. Uh, I certainly have as I said I texted Luke about the other day you know it forces everybody to kind of look internally about themselves a little bit and you will come out of it as a better person having read it and as I say we've got two uh, signed copies that we'll make available through a competition Uh, but yeah Luke thanks again we look forward to uh, having you back on to discuss more in depth about your life as a sport agent in 2021.
3: Pleasure, and I promise I'll do a bit of research about my stats to do a bit better. than that. I was going to
2: say we've got to come up with five different questions. So
3: <laughs> we've seen I've set the I've set the bar so low. So yeah, we'll see.
2: To be right. to be fair, in the guests so far, I think uh, there's only been one person that's not got them all wrong. So okay, okay. Sure, uh, sure yeah, but no, thank you again, Luke. That was uh, that was really good. Thank you.
3: Pleasure. Look forward to coming back. Looking for a new cricket equipment partner for yourself or your club can sometimes be tricky with so many options to choose from, how do you make the right choice? When you want quality, value and service, there really is only one place to start. For more than a decade, Woodstock cricket have been producing award-winning, high-performance cricket bats from their Shropshire workshop. Matched with their classy soft goods, luggage and accessories, Woodstock cricket really do tick all the boxes. Get in touch with Woodstock Cricket and find out why many loyal clubs, players and international customers can't be wrong at info at woodstockcricket.co.uk.
0: Thank you to our sponsors, uh, partners, Woodstock Cricket for their continued support. That was obviously a note from them. Uh, And that was the interview with Luke Sutton. Now, lads, I don't know what you think. We we the three of us read his book before, um, before we went about that interview, and I'll be honest, as we as we discussed off air earlier, it's had a bit of a profound effect on me in in terms of the way that Luke looks at things and you know just uh, reflects on certain parts of his life and certain things that he's done and, and what have you, and you know I I I find it, it's an amazing read. It's quite a tough read in places because it is so brutally honest. Um, but I think the fact that it it can't, the way I looked at it, and it made me look inwardly at myself, it can't be only me that it would have that effect on. I mean, what do you guys think? Firstly of the book, but then also like the interview.
1: Yeah, from from my perspective, um, firstly, I didn't think anybody could be more positive than Simon Jones, who we who we had on last week um you know looking at the way luke approaches life now you know it just gets better and better from our point of view it's also probably one of the only times that i've actually got emotional talking to somebody or hearing from somebody because you guys did the interview i was uh i was, was part of it but from my perspective yeah i got quite emotional in it obviously reading the book you get quite emotional um and then you know yeah i'll be honest i shed a bit of a tear during that interview it was um it was either are there, um some onions, or he—he um, he genuinely had an effect on me. So yeah, I think he did an
2: effect.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Die? yeah,
2: okay. I think that it—it well, it, it was amazing. And the—the the one thing that we're getting, whether it was Simon Jones' interview, Luke's interview, the stuff with Toby at the start, and like we are getting brutal honesty from these guys, which is refreshing to mm-hmm. hear. And like we. We are by no means qualified psychologists in any way. Um, we just listen to people, we talk to people, and we hope people enjoy listening to what we're talking about. But the one thing, I, I it's really made me think. Obviously, my story came out in, in episode three, and each time we've done an interview, I've I've put links in, tried to relate it back to my own thing. Like I say, not professional. I just sit here and listen and go right. I can relate to this. And the two the two things that. Are, Sort of regular in what's coming out is this thing about identity that we that we seem to be having. We had it a bit with Simon last week, um obviously with Luke when he talks about this wanting to be the best and this desire to be the best at whatever he does, and that's part of his identity. And that led into the downfall. Obviously, the stuff with me, which was, I became this cricketer sort of person. But it's this, it's this fact that people get themselves into this situation where it's this kind of identity crisis that. They're not quite sure who they are, what they're about, and how to deal with that, um, which I found really interesting. And the second part was the two things he said about um, what to say to people who you think might be going through that, and what um, to say if you think you might be going through that or that approach. So, what he said to people, who have, if, if you've got friends, like keep being positive. And that was something that yeah. I could relate to very much, so because I always, I always felt I was letting people down, and I didn't need a bollocking, because that just exaggerated the fact. And I've related to so much of his story in my experiences and, and things like that. And and the second thing that he said was, if someone's going through that, and I really struggled with this when you asked me this question, John, it was, uh, what would I say to me mm. back then? Because at the time, and I've, it, I, I didn't have a clue what I'd be open to. But what he said was, be open to help. I knew I had a problem. Like, same as Luke said. He knew he had a problem. The, the people that we've spoke to, you know there's an issue. But it's knowing where to go with that and knowing to be mm. open or, or getting that mindset being open to going, right, I'm open to this change. I'm open to trying this. I'm open to this conversation, which hopefully with what Luke did in talking to us about it and what he's done in writing a book will come through and... People being open about it and being honest, for me, I'm sorry I've rambled on in answering your question there, but obviously we know it's something I'm quite quite passionate about, but like it it just, that really got me, like be open, be open. I think if everyone can just be more open about this type of thing, whether it be alcoholism, (laughs) mental health, I know for me, it's all one big thing that encompasses how it comes out, whether it comes out through alcoholism, whether it comes out through drugs, whether it comes out through depressive tendencies, whatever, it's all one big similar thing. And the more we can be open about it and talk about it, the better we're going to be in dealing with it.
0: So, sorry about that. I think the, the, uh, one of the uh, one of the, the the massive things that I, I think is a, a huge positive from Luke's point of view is he's now obviously completely turned around in his life. I think he's nine years uh, without a drink now, which is phenomenal. But not only is he Turned his own life around, he, he is now having a profound effect on positive effect on the people that he now manages in his role as a sports agent. So, Louis Smith, gymnast, Samantha Quick, Olympic gold or silver medalist uh, from the GB hockey team, James Taylor, who obviously we're getting to know reasonably well. Um, it, it is, it, you know, having gone through that, you know, heart problem that ended his cricket career and Luke is now in a position where he gets to have positive effect in his role as their mentor come agent come whatever you want to call it and he says it you know it made it abundantly clear that he and we asked him didn't we very openly about it, it does he see that as part of his role of course he sees it as a big part of his role to try and help guide his charges through these difficult um situations that life will throw up at them um Luke He's written a second book, uh, which you'll have heard in the interview. we were quite keen to uh, to get him to come on and talk about that in a separate interview. Uh, we didn't want to kind of cloud the two or, or confuse the two messages, if you like. So uh, we, we obviously kept this first interview very separate. Um, we do have two copies of his book, uh, Back From the Edge, uh, two signed copies, which he very kindly offered to give away as part of a competition um the um the way in which we are going to um, offer those out it will be a social media competition uh, so there will be more details of that released in the next couple of days um so probably tomorrow which will be Friday uh, with this coming out on Thursday um, but yeah I look everybody who listens to this uh, if you if you're within that first you know 24 hour period enter that competition because if you are, one of the two people that gets a free copy of this book, it's it was it's life changing for me. As I said, it you know it, it's made me look at uh, a few different aspects of, of different things, and I, I, it, within that ten day period since we recorded the interview, I, it's given me a completely different outlook on uh, a, a number of things. So it, it's it, it's brilliant. Um. So yes, uh, thank you very much to Luke Sutton um i would like to say thank you again this week to my two wonderful co-hosts uh simon roberts thank you simon my
2: absolute pleasure this week was very very special to be fair that's one of the best interviews if we do better interviews than that or more honest interviews than that then we're doing the right thing. so uh absolute pleasure to be part of it this week
0: and uh eugene berger thanks huge
1: no problem, Jono. And yeah, couldn't agree with any si anymore. You know, you know what I love about this so far is um, the positivity that is coming out from all of the, the people that are listening from the conversations that we've been having. I know the three of us have been getting feedback from mates, from from you know, from random people via our our, our, um, our social media streams, whether it be YouTube, whether it be Instagram, whether it be Twitter, whether it be Facebook. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, you know, thank you very much for the feedback. But more importantly Keep talking about it, you know. Keep talking to people about yeah. what's going on in your life and sharing your—I want to say your challenges, but sharing the good and the bad. Um, you know, it's always nice to to hear some positive news as well as as well as just sharing the struggle that you're going through, whatever it may be. Especially during you know, especially during the holidays.
0: I think uh, just to, just to finish, we we released another blog post. Um, this week and there was a bit in there about Ben Stokes and Ben Stokes being on the human. And that, you know, I wrote that blog post this week. And I think it's really important that people remember that Ben Stokes is on the human and Ben Stokes has lost his dad in the last few days. And we'll be feeling exactly the same thoughts that any, any other man, woman, or child in the world would feel at, at losing their father or someone close to them. We, the three of us don't know Ben Stokes. Um, but if there's anybody listening to this who does, I will reiterate the message. Get in touch because I'm found profoundly of the view that it's better to say something and never be thanked than never to say anything at all. And I think that runs across everything we're trying to do. We've made some real positive effects on people already. And um, certainly Simon's story in terms of Uh, The the contacts we've had, we've been helping people by listening to their stories and talking to them and pointing them in the right directions. Uh, Conversations can make a a massive, massive difference to how people are feeling. So um, reach out to your mates, make sure they're all right. Um, Look, a lot of joy in life, but sometimes people go through some pretty tough shit. So um, be the person that makes that positive change for people. Um, guys, thanks Absolutely. again for joining us. Um, don't forget to watch this on YouTube. Uh, engage with us on social media. Sign up to the blog on our website, slogginit.co.uk. Um, yeah, love each other, and we will join you again next week. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, John, and next time, Thanks, guys. Cheers, boys.